the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 42 The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And for this episode, 42, we thought it'd be stupid if we passed up the opportunity to look at the BBC television version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Those who know will get the reference as to why we've picked episode 42. Uh, Those who don't, it'll become clear later on. There's so much to say about this. We are treating this essentially as... We're treating this as as a Doctor Doctor Who. Who. So we're going to do full commentary on the first and last episodes and... We're going to get Siri on board. Yes, I suppose so, yeah. uh, Non-Who episodes, we don't tend to do a drag queen. It's an honorary doctor. Cleo Rocco in a full face of makeup and a silver miniskirt has to be an honourable mention. Yes. Before we launch into what is probably going to be a a bit of a gushy episode, let's get the tonic screwdriver out. What have we got for tonight? Well, what we have tonight is one of your choices. Do you want to introduce it? Uh, this was a gift to me, and I have held back admirably from finishing the bottle. It's called Batch. It's a gin made in Burnley, which is, what, five miles down the road from me. It's fairly strong. It's listed as industrial strength gin. Do you have the info bollocks in front of you? Distilled and bottled in Burnley, Lancashire. Awarded a double gold SFWSC medal. Industrial strength gin is judged as one of the finest spirits in the world. With sweet lemon notes on the nose, powerful juniper gives way to a smooth, lingering citrus finish. Perfect base for cocktails or an outstanding gin and tonic. And so it's, it's almost empty. It's almost empty. We've only got a tiny bit left. Got there's some left. It is 55% handcrafted in Lancashire, and it says that there's lemon in it. There's a sharpness to it, but it's not overtly lemony. It is, to me, just a... It's one of the standard gins, but it really, really does the job. But it's a very, it's a very, very nice standard gin. Mm. It's got that combination of bite and smoothness that mm. you get with a really good gin. I can taste lemon in that. Um, I quite like lemon as a flavour. Yeah. I think it works well with gin. It is not overpowering. It's blended really nicely. This is absolutely four territory for me. I'm going to sneak that into five. Me personally, I, in terms of flavour, it's nothing. Sort of, it's a ginting mango and passion fruit, which again is another one of my fives. It is just a, a pretty standard gin, but just the way it is, and you don't need much of it to feel an effect. It's a, usually for gins of this type, it, it needs to be something that has a a particular flavour, something a little bit different. With which this, for me is the reason it's not going to a five. Yeah, and so it's but it's, it's a unusual, very, very for me. nice four. Grab a glass, we shall descend into the bowels of Podcasting House and open up the Black Archive. What I'm going to suggest is the missing episodes of an absolutely classic sitcom from my youth, and that is The Liverbirds. The Liverbirds ran for pretty much the entirety of the 1970s and through into the, through into the 80s. I think it actually started very tail end of the, the 60s. There was, a, there was a pilot, I think, in 69. And for pretty much the whole of the run, one of the two flatmates was Sandra, played by Nerys Hughes. Mm. And she was uh, initially with Polly James, 
and when she left, Elizabeth Estenson came on board. But the first series didn't feature Sandra. No, and, and, and you Pauline only told me recently, yeah. Who was the, uh, it was Pauline Collins and Polly Jones who were the flatmates, and none of those episodes survive. So I think everything from season two onwards survives. The first episode, which is the Pauline Collins episodes, I, I don't think even have any surviving clips, and I would really like to see them. So that's my pick for the, the Black Archive. Full whack of live birds, please. Um, I'm going to rescue something in keeping with this edition from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the radio series. Now, in uh, episode three of the first series, there is a, a short scene with Marvin, the android, and he hums uh, some Pink Floyd, and that was trimmed out, and I believe it's been lost. There are off-air recordings of it, but that has been lost, so you and me are both the same. We don't like gaps in things. We don't like deleted scenes that we know should be there but aren't because they've been censored. So that is, uh, I think it's about two minutes. It's not very long, but it's there. So that will be what I'll bring back. Having brought that back from the Black Archive, shall we crack on with the television production? Now, I am very, very, very fond of this. It's probably my favourite version of Hitchhiker's Guide. The radio series are brilliant, and Dirk Maggs has done his level best. He's adapted all six books into radio series with the same cast, as as near as they can, and tried to make sense of what he calls the whole general mishmash of things. In fact, I think Douglas Adams called it that. Because continuity is somewhat fluid throughout the books. And every different version of Hitchhiker's Guide tells a slightly different version of the story. The TV series came in 1981. It's six half-hour episodes, give or take. And at the time, it was considered to be unfilmable because it was so complicated and there were so many special effects required. They really pulled out all the stops with this. So the... And I remember it being a really big deal at the time. Um, and we had some fantastic telefancy at around that time because it was sort of Warriors Gate uh, era. Oh uh, yeah, it was. It was yeah. yeah um, from that nineteen eighty, so it would have been. It was filmed in eighty. It was yeah. broadcast in eighty one, I think. Yeah. But we also had things like the Day of the Triffids adaptation, mm-hmm. the Nightmare Man, some absolutely fantastic stuff. Tail end of Blake Seven, I think, was around 1980 and Kinder was recorded in 81 which is off the wall really Kinder I love Kinder yeah especially now it's got the, uh, a, a really good special effect for the snake that that was the thing that let it that really let it down you can't get away from big rubber snake at the end of Kinder they just couldn't have done that justice in 1981 yeah, um, but the CGI, the CGI thing is wonderful. And some of the CGI replacements on the DVDs haven't been that great. That is one example where yeah. it's really good and convincing. But getting back to Hitchhiker's Guide, some of the, the special effects that they use in this, there's a lot of glass paintings and matte shots, but there are also a lot of very, very complicated composite shots where two or even three or four different video elements have been blended together for one scene. There's one that sticks in my head of a... Um, with a vogue on ships flying over London, which we'll get to in a minute with commentary on, on this. For the and time, that would have been very complicated. And lots of animation. Yeah, which is all hand-drawn. We should actually watch the thing, probably, and then rather than just comment on it before we've even seen it. Again, I've seen this many, many times over the years. It is superb. Without further ado, episode one of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The episode opens with a countdown to the destruction of Earth. 
Is this Peter Jones? Peter Jones, yeah. As in the rag trade? Yes. Oh, infotext. Yes. The music is very 80s. It is. It's Paddy Kingsland, and it catapults me back to my childhood because it's very similar to things that... Because um, Paddy Kingsland, of course, did a lot of incidental music on Doctor Who. So all of this, this particular voices that he uses on the his music, they're all very reminiscent of my very early childhood. In the production notes for this, it says that they wanted somebody that sounded like Peter Jones mm. when they did the radio version, and they cast around for three months to find somebody Peter Jonesy mm. before they just hit upon the idea of hiring Peter Jones. Because at the time of the radio, he uh, radio, he would have been in the reboot of the Rag Trade. Right, I'm not overly familiar with it. I've seen the odd bits of it here and there. Um, it was a very successful um, sitcom in the mid '60s, and then was brought back with much of the uh, the original cast in the mid '70s. And as well as Peter Jones, it had Miriam Carlin and. Early roles for Sheila Hancock, Wanda Ventham. It's it's fun, is the um, the rag trade? It's it has the limitations that any '60s sitcom has, and that it's all a bit stayed, and the humour is really very old fashioned. Mm. Um, what with it being over fifty years old and all. Well, yeah, yes, I suppose so. Now, it's just said in the subtitles there that when the the opening sequence is an astronaut sort of drifting through the logo of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it said that the original version, as he was passing through the O, it had elements of the Doctor Who title sequence lifted from it, which were replaced by the time of the broadcast. Oh, the faithful dressing gown. Now, they only bought one or two of those Hmm. and by the time they'd filmed it it was out of production so uh, I think Simon Jones actually wanted to use it at things like conventions or public appearances or what have you and they said you you really can't because it's the only one we've got if anything happens to it we're buggered and so what happened to it afterwards? I don't I have seen him in publicity shots Hmm. either wearing it or one that's very very similar to it because every time they've done another radio series uh, he's done plenty of publicity for it. See, there's an awful lot of stuff that you pick up from the su- uh, production subtitles yeah. that you'd never actually spot. Like, there's a fence there in the, the, at the top of the screen, fencing off next to a neighbor's garden. They actually built that fence. The BBC built it for them to screen them off. And the, the production things were uh, just said where the given the address the, the, of the cottage. The was to hide from, which is about the level of detail of... Um, Doctor Who. The, the yeah. production. It's still not beaten. Nothing's beaten yet. The the addition of the newspaper that they used to make the costumes for in the Demons when they were Morris dancing. That's a proper anal probe. Yeah, that's not a sentence you hear to <laughs> Oh, the sequence with the chimp. And I seem to remember the chimp cost more than all the extras put together. Oh, yeah, there, there we go. Fred costs more to hire than the five human dinner guests. I'd forgotten it was Geoffrey McGiffin in the, um, in the radio. He, he turns up in loads of things. Oh, 
Take your pick. The thing I've seen him in most recently is... I was in an episode of Toast of London, I think. Oh, I really didn't get on with that. It's It's typical Matt Berry stuff. It's Matt Berry being... Consciously clever. Matt Berry plays pretty much the same character in everything. Yeah, but... With different degrees of dilution. Um, It's his vocal mannerisms. He he accentuates certain words in ridiculous ways. Yeah. But things like the IT crowd, where he's a secondary character, or the Mighty Boosh. Um, I've still never seen it. I'm not sure it'd be your cup of tea. I think it might be a bit... Oh, no. Yes, we have. We tried it one night. Did we? No, I'm thinking of some. No, I'm thinking of somebody else. I know, no. I know we haven't. We haven't commented no. on it. Too, it? it was something to do with uh, in a zoo with no visitors, or something. A zoo with no visitors. There were two animal keepers in the, the episode that I I saw. Sort of caretakers, handyman, animal keepers. I'm sure it was. Anyway, I always think Joe Amelia is very reminiscent of um, Paul Jericho. The uh, Castellan. A little bit more square-jawed. Mm. And he was Footlights. Oh, was he? Yeah, late no, late 50s. That's I only know that because I read that on the infotext story. Oh, I missed that bit, right. This was filmed at Ed- uh, Edmunds Farm in Balcombe. For anyone who wants to descend on Edmunds Farm. Was there a little Scarecrow Marvin in the background there? I need to have a look at this. Where? Uh, behind his yellow hat. See what I mean? It's a tripod. It's sort of swinging about in the breeze. I always took it as a bit of equipment that they've got between some sort of Cat and Jenny thing. Yeah, it's just... Oh, it's, it's, in his, it, yeah, it's, it's waving back because it's in his hand. It's, it's, it's... <laughs> That's a very Douglas Adams ripoff. That's a nice graphic. Mm. Pangalactic gargle blaster. Cleorokos. Cleorokos dressed as a an Orion. She's desperately uncontained in that thing. Oh. The metallic-looking plastic costumes cost 450 quid each. Ziggy's den of iniquity. The Evil Drone Boozerama. Kidney Donor's 25% discount. Yeah, somehow the barman manages to pull six pints of beer in 15 and a half seconds. It's impressive. For a fiver, good grief. And the old big five pound notes. Not the massive paper the wall with white ones. It's quite unusual at this period in television for them to be drinking real beer. Now, they are drinking out of, uh, of tricks-up glasses, so which are a bugger to find. I can't actually... I, I would love to buy one. I saw it once demonstrated on Tomorrow's World or something like that, and it's very clever how, it, how it's done. It's a double layer of glass yeah. with the liquid in between the two layers. Yeah. But usually, in, in beer in this sort of period was actually cold tea, which must have been disgusting. Yes, because there was a whole list of things that you could use for the different alcohols. Yes. I was in a production of something called The Unexpected Guest, which is a J.B. Priestley play. Yes. And 
uh, in it, I had to have brandy. And I suggested that we used apple juice. But unfortunately, on stage, from a distance, apple juice doesn't look anything like brandy. Mm. So we had to mix it half and half with Coca-Cola, and it was disgusting. Oh, the old boxes of peanuts, remember those? Long before they were on cards. He, he does it. He does an absolutely wonderful sort of very angry Englishman. Douglas Adams actually wrote Arthur Dent with Simon Jones in mind because they worked together on something else. And again, it's on a documentary somewhere. It starts with Simon Jones cutting a rose out of somebody's front garden and giving it to his girlfriend as they're walking along and the owner comes out and says what do you think you're doing the police get called and then that escalates and the army gets and eventually the whole world just blows up because it escalates that far from cutting one rose and it was Simon Jones that was in that sketch that's but he, was, it, he said that was Arthur Dent to me see I always thought this bit over London was stock footage but they filmed it specially named Tower 42 Clouds taken from a photograph. Well, they were done much better in the time back. They were. But that's the shot I was talking about before. It's a composite of three or four different elements. Prime Minister of Siam in the movie The King and I. That's oh, and a shot in the dark, which is a better film. Mm. Um, King and I is a little problematic is it imperialism imperialism colonialism generally fairly bad things it's not as bad as seven brides for seven brothers they were of their time no seven brides for seven brothers was was problematic at the time it was it was made with the whole kidnapping and um uh, more than a touch of Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> There's a reason it doesn't get repeated terribly often. <laughs> it would have been more dramatic in silence. Would it? I don't think it would, you know. More technically accurate, but... If you look at something like Firefly, which I adore... Oh, we should do Firefly at some point. We should, that's... It's a lot to cram into one edition, this Firefly, because it's such a good series. Tales of the Intergalactic Space Whore, as my <laughs> used to call it. He was very, very, very taken with Inara. Really? What a surprise. That did all the space scenes in Firefly are in complete silence. And uh, is it J.J. Abrams did that? Uh, how am I mixing two people up? No, it's Josh Whedon. Josh Whedon, yeah. When I was working in Queens, in Belfast... Science departments were struggling to get students to apply for degrees. And the physics department for years had been doing a lecture to school kids of physics, uh, examples of where physics is done well in films and TV series. And they, did, they had a load of stuff from, um, from Firefly because the physics had been looked at and was very good. And it was a, it was a very good and it was a very popular lecture they'd been doing for ages. And they, they updated it each year. And... Chemistry department wanted to do a similar one and ended up do, doing a similar one. Knowing that I was a bit of a sci-fi geek, they asked me to to join in with the writing of it, 
and I went over and watched this um, this lecture, and then tried tried to come up with bits of scientifically accurate chemistry that appeared in TV shows, and I desperately tried to find one for Doctor Who, and I couldn't find a single bit of chemistry that actually made sense. Mm. And I was talking to the uh, the team in um, the physics department. And they had exactly the same thing with, with physics. They said they couldn't find examples in Doctor Who where, that showed good physics. The worst example's still got to be the cricket ball in Fort of Doomsday. Mind you, there was one of the books, I think, I've, in my mind, it's The Taking of Planet Five with the Eighth Doctor. And he ends up in space, completely unprotected, for some reason, flow, drifting through space with a fountain. And the water from the fountain separates into... Hydrogen and oxygen, he's able to breathe it in and survive. That is the ropiest ever explanation for surviving in space I've ever heard. I haven't read the um, Taking a Planet 5. My recollection was that it was reasonably good, and I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I love the graphics animation and... Music and sound effects in this are really distinctive. The little bits of animation are wonderful. Oh, Christ, that looks disgusting. Mushy peas on a dyed blue bun, or cake, apparently, with paprika on top. It really goes for it and all. Is that a reused set? Yes, it's taken from uh, the film Alien, which the BBC bought up all the the sets for cheap, and it crops up in various bits of Doctor Who, certainly. Terminus, I I seem Mm. to remember, a lot of Terminus was sets from Alien. This is a glass painting. I think it's great, because there's hardly anything in that set. Is that the Statue of Liberty? Yes. And in one of the compartments we're about to open up, Patrick Troughton's... um, you know the helmet that he uses to show Zoe? Oh, well, the, the Evil of the Daleks? Yes. There. So that's it. <laughs> yeah, the whole towel idea got forgotten fairly quickly. Yes. Although it does... They do mine it in the books. And certainly the radio series, the towel idea crops up quite a lot. Mm. <laughs> he does wonderful bewildered acting, Yeah, he does. Oh, Stratford Johns would have been good. Frank Milmus would have been good as well. John Gielgud. The Vaughan captain actually reminds me of the dad of an ex. And he was a miserable, grumpy bastard too. This whole joke about a glass of water took me years to work out. I couldn't really get it and then there's one word was changed in I think either one of the radio versions or something like that and it was changed to ask a glass of water how it feels to be drunk or something like that 
and I'm ashamed of myself for not getting it. Four years later, they released a towel as a tie-in. And how much would they be worth now? Well, in the early 80s, I had a TARDIS play tent. It was brilliant. And I know that it cost £11 at the time. It's worth considerably more than that now, and I don't know where my TARDIS went. No one knew much about the end, and of course. Well, I hope you managed to rectify that a bit. Well, yes, I transmitted a new entry after the end. Yeah, it surely's a bit, but it's still an improvement. What's it say now? That does very much echo my feelings on poetry. There's almost none of it I like. I've really tried over the years to to get into poetry. There are fragments now and then that I do like, but I I was given a poetry book um, mm. last year, and it's it's full of romantic poetry. There are snatches of it that are very good and emotive, and a lot of it is not, I'm afraid. Um, but I feel the same way about Shakespeare. I Shakespeare is revered, and unfortunately, because vast chunks of it were rammed line by line, over-analysed when I was in English at school. It sort of knocked any life out of it whatsoever. So let's watch episodes two to five, and then we will come back and do episode six. Right, so the end of episode one... Um, Earth had been destroyed. Arthur and Ford had escaped on the Vogon ship. They didn't plan to stay on it long, but they got captured by the guards and the captain reads some poetry to them. Uh, Arthur, thinking he's being gentlemanly, compliments the poetry. Bad move. It is not to show the captain's softer side. It was meant to show what a nasty piece of work he was. So they tossed them out of an airlock and they're rescued by Ford's semi-cousin's spaceship, Zephod Beeblebrox, who is the president of the universe, and Trillian, who is a girl that Arthur met at a party in Islington. Um, oh, all, and Marvin, of course. Marvin the paranoid android, uh, android, who is one of the best characters ever committed to film, radio, books, anything. They end up, by a series of events, landing on the planet Magrathea, which is a mythical planet that is in suspended hi- uh, hibernation for a very long time. But they are tax reasons. for tax reasons. But they are a planet of planet builders, so they custom design planets. And it transpires that Earth isn't actually a planet at all. It's a huge supercomputer that has been designed to find the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. They know what the answer is. The answer has been worked out by the original Magrathians, who built a huge supercomputer called Deep Thought. And after seven and a half million years, it works out that the answer to life, the universe and everything is... 42. But he can't tell them what the question is. So they have to build Earth to find out what the question is. Five minutes before Earth's due to complete its program, the Vogons blew it up. So because Arthur was on as part of the Earth Matrix at the very end, he has it in his brain. And the Magrathians want to take his brain out so they can find out what the question is. They escape... And through a bizarre series of events, fall back through time and end up at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Now, this is where the TV version diverts from 
the certainly the radio series. I can't remember what it does in the book. Because in the book and the radio series, I think the ship they escape on from the restaurant at the end of the universe, it ends up in the middle of a war and it ends up flying into the sun and only Arthur and Ford manage to escape. In the television version, which is where we're up to now, the end of episode five, they escape from the restaurant at the end of the universe on a ship, which is actually part of the loudest rock band that ever existed. And they're so loud that people listen to their con- uh, their concerts on another planet that it's being played on. Uh, the, but the ship that they steal is part of Disaster Area's sort of grand, grand finale where a ship crashes into the sun for no reason. And that's where we're up to. But there were, there were some notable guest stars in the intervening episodes. We've got... Um, Colin Jeevans. Colin Jeevans. Jack May. And Peter Davison. Peter Davison. Who's virtually unrecognisable. He plays the Ameglian Major Cow, the dish of the day. And because Sandra Dickinson, who plays Trillian in this, is or was Peter Davison's wife at the time, he was so keen to be in it, he agreed to do it without a fee, which he didn't, he had to be paid for it. But there was something about, because he just started as Doctor Who, they didn't want to have Doctor Who playing a dish of the day. So they had to cover him up in all sorts of, of makeup, and it wasn't heavily publicised, but... You would not know, if you, unless you knew, you'd never work out that that was Peter Davison. He was just in a West Country accent, covered in pink rubber. And yes, he and Sandra Dickinson had met a, a few years earlier while they were working on... A Man for Emily. A Man for Emily. An episode of The Tomorrow People that is as... If you don't know that, Google some images. You'll see the Fifth Doctor in a very different light. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but Jack May, who was in... Was he in the Space Pirates? Yes, and... Colin Jeevans, um, who was in K9 and Company. Adam Adamant, had Jack May in. And uh, Richard Vernon, who plays Slighty Bartfast. Now, I know him best as... Um, oh, Sir Horace in A Class Act. He was, but he was also in Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister as... Um, Someone memorable. Oh, he was. It was a really good character. It was, a, it was the head of a bank, Bartlett's Bank. Desmond Glazebrook, who was this bumbling head of a bank, played perfectly. And it's it's such a shame that he died as early as he did. He died in uh, 92, 93. So before they'd done the third radio series and um, Richard Griffiths took over. And he was very good, but he wasn't the same slighty Bartfast. Hmm. But you, I mean, you're familiar with this. What, what are you thinking of it so far? I, I love it. I've always loved Hitchhiker's Guide. I remember watching it when it first came out. I'd heard of the radio series beforehand. Somebody, uh, lad I was at school with, was wildly keen on it, but I never actually had a, a way of listening to it. I was only thinking this earlier today that it's very easy to hark back to these periods and, and the television of the time and think, and, you know, we, we watch it now and say how wonderful it is and record podcasts, which we couldn't have done at the time. But a lot of the stuff that we watch looks better now than it did on transmission. It's better presented. It's more accessible. We, um... we're, we're great we're, in terms of catch up you can watch things that you want at any time those days you could only watch it on transmission that was it yeah but I mean you were saying we couldn't have done podcasts at the time do you not remember tape scenes sort of and things like um, well the audiovisual stuff you could order because I, I used to listen I, I listened to quite a few tape scenes I, I think Andy and Lisa were involved with one from what I remember it is a damn sight easier editing at home and uploading to the internet yes that's true and 
Is it Ray Phase Shift they were involved with? I was never involved with tape zines. There used to be a, uh, the Bournemouth local group had its own zine, which I did a, a bit of writing for. Because at the time of recording, we're, we're coming up on about 4,000 listeners. I don't really fancy sending out that many tapes. It's much easier to upload an MP3. You're just not appropriate. I'm not, I'm not committed enough to this podcasting thing. So, for the, uh, we are, we'll progress to the final episode, episode six, broadcast in 1981. Here we This incidental music is all very reminiscent of the whole Legopolis first season of Peter Davison. It's all... All a bit tinkly. Mm. Sandra Dickinson's top is a little... See-through. Oh, so a nice hark back to the, um, the first episode... Oh, there you go. The black ship did, in fact, belong to the Hagenen nuns in the earliest version of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Ah, so, yes, because John Lloyd wrote a lot of, or quite a bit of material for the radio series, and Douglas Adams chopped it all out in this version. Which John Lloyd was... Did they fall, did they fall out? I don't know what it, It's a bit nebulous, because John Lloyd's been interviewed since, and he's clearly a bit put out by it, but I don't think they ever fell out. Because John Lloyd um, replaced uh, William Franklin as the second voice of the guide in the sixth radio series. <laughs> oh, Simon Jones has kept the dressing gown. Fans have bought the Vogon Guard, um, Zayfod's jacket and boots, boots and Trillian's red outfit. What exists of Trillian's red outfit because it's, it's a little flimsy. It's very fitted. It does show her off very nicely. Space Truckers, what a disturbing film that is. It's just pulled up a, a list of films that Sandra Dickinson's been in. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, it's got Charles Dance in it and he plays a real creepy, sort of cybernetic guy. It's Marvin's description here. It's so. Mockingly cynical. Oh, he is marvellous, isn't he? Oh, Stephen Moore isn't Marvin in the sixth radio series. He's only in it very briefly, and it's voiced by um, Jim Broadbent, which does work. But nothing's ever going to get away from Stephen Moore as Marvin. So who's that? He's just the presenter of... No, no, I mean the actor. Or is it just he really looks like uh, Steve Strange? I don't know who that is. Lead singer of Visage. So this is it. We're going to die. I wish you'd stop saying that. The Bell Cell Bombs used to cause great resentment and insecurity amongst neighbouring races by being one of the most enlightened, accomplished, and above all, quiet 
civilizations in the galaxy. As a punishment for this behaviour, which was held to be a official verdict, arrogant bastards. <laughs> And the newscaster apparently is Rainer Burton. <laughs> the teleport system that's buggered that is in all the versions, yeah. but um, Marvin isn't in the second radio series, but he does pop up in the third where he's got an artificial leg and he's aware of the irony of a robot having an artificial leg. He gets just fried by the sun. One of his arms is welded to his side and he's lost a leg. So, but he survives. I suppose some people might have expected better treatment after having waited for 576,000 million years in a car park. But not me. I may just be a menial robot, but I'm far too intelligent to expect anyone to think of me for a moment. Poor Marvin. That was a bit Blake 70, that. It was. That teleport. Quite a nice effect, though. I think he does a really good job as Ford Prefect. In fact, scandalous though it is to say, I prefer him to Geoffrey McGiven. And in the, have you seen the film version of this? Yes, I quite liked it. But again, it's like we were saying about the film version of... Um, the Avengers or the reboot of the, the Prisoner, you've got to view it as its own piece of entertainment rather than tying it into mm. the original. But they've got some rapper to play Ford Prefect, and it really doesn't work. Martin Freeman's very good as yeah. Arthur Dent. Yeah. That looks suspiciously like the Black Archive door. It's the Golga Frinchams, isn't I love the way they just take ordinary things and... Do you recognise him? The master. I do now you've told me. I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have picked it up. Caroline John's husband, Geoffrey Beavers. And Aubrey Morris, who plays the captain in this. And does a very, very good job. In the radio series, it's played by David Jason. Splendid idea. Now, my prisoners, can't I just interrogate them a little bit? Ask them what they want to drink. Thank you, sir. All right. You scum. You vermin. Steady on, number one. What do you want to drink? Well, gin and tonic sounds very nice to me. Arthur? Yes. With ice or without? I'm asking the questions. Number one. Push off, will you? There's a good fellow. I'm trying to take a relaxing bath. Aubrey Morris had lots of trouble with his lines in this scene, which, to put it kindly, helped with the vagueness of the character. Ark in space. space. Why is his gin and tonic red? Red, and in a much bigger glass. Or vase. I've never noticed that before. Maybe it has something to do with the empty red decanter next to him. It could. Although, having said that, Jeffrey Beavers has a gin and tonic in his hand, so that might be where the two gin and tonics are. Mm. And Ford is just... Oh, they've all gone. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say. 
say about the planet of Golga Frigate? That alert would not be good for somebody with epilepsy. <laughs> St. Ostler. I used to live in St. Ostler. Mm. Great breweries there. Tribute. Proper job. Doombar. Oh. Mm. This must have been bloody freezing. This was filmed in the Lake District, I think. Yeah. And he's in that bathwater. But they got, because it was filmed miles from anywhere, they got a huge tanker to come with hot water from uh, the local paper plant or something like that and fill the bath. And about halfway through, this big gobbit of black sludge came out with the water and just coloured the water. So it's, if you look on screen, you can actually see it. Oh, he was, he's been in, he was in something, wasn't he? Oh, Mr. Chumley Warner, of course. John Glover. Oh, yes. I love those Chumley Warner sketches on Harry Enfield's show. The colour of that water. Oh, that must have been horrible. The deep thought sequence was filmed on week 42 of the BBC calendar. <laughs> if it's in my brain, and I don't know how to reach it, suppose we introduce some random element which would be shaped by the brainwave pattern. This, this little sequence here is always a bit... Nonsensical. Yeah, a bit so, yeah, tacked on at the end. Whereas the Golga Frinchman bit is got. Just at the moment, it's a very beautiful planet. I never really saw the point of that. I think it would have been a lot better to just leave the question unasked. Yeah, probably, but um, I don't know whether at the time he intended writing it as a series. I think it was just it was just something that he uh, dreamed up, laid on his back in a field in Innsbruck. I think forty nine when he died. Oh, it really is a splendid series. It, it is. It's marvelous. As I said, that very end bit with the with the question and pulling the um, letters out of the the scrabble bag. Yeah. I don't think it needs that. I I think it uh, the would have been a slightly more downbeat ending if they they'd done the this isn't going to make any difference. Your ancestors are the Golga Frenchums. True. Yeah, and, that would and have left it at that point. point. I think that would have would have worked better. But that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he predicted the Kindle. True. The Hitchhiker's Guide is one of those... Because there was only ever one television series. The the a second one was sort of mooted, but not really, it never came to anything. Each of the, the books in the series, the first five were by Douglas Adams, and the sixth one, which was a few years after he died, was by Owen Colfer. It wasn't bad, actually. It wasn't bad, because it... Um, it tried to make sense of it. The end of the fifth book's very downbeat. Uh, it's, there's not much comedy in it by the end. And Alan Colfer's done some quite good stuff because he was Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl, yeah. But each of the books are completely different in mm. tone, really. 
I quite like what Dirk Maggs has done with the radio series. He has made an awful lot of sense out of a lot of nonsense. My favourite of the radio series is still the first one. I think it's great. But yeah. the third one's good. The fourth one's very good. The quandary phase. Because it largely focuses on Arthur when he gets back to Earth. Because Earth is <laughs> revealed later on to be a in, a in a plural sector. So multiple versions of Earth exist in the same space. So when one's demolished, it just pops back into existence. But they don't find this out until a lot later on. So the Vogons just keep going back to try and demolish it. Even though the order's been rescinded by this point, the Vogon captain is so officious that he needs to complete the job for his own self-satisfaction. Yeah, so that's Hitchhiker's Guide. It's a big, sprawling universe thing now. The, the, the canon of it is massive. And, and it was another one of those where we just sat and watched the, the final episode without really very much in the way of comment, mm. which we tend to do when we're getting really you know, into something. Really fixated on something and it doesn't make for great podcasting. But it was incredibly entertaining. And I've seen this loads and loads mm. and loads of times and was still very entertained by it. And although it is one six episode story, each of the episodes is totally different from each yeah. other. This must have cost a fortune to make. Yes, because there are loads of just few second inserts. Well, we were talking about the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster, yes. and there's that little sequence where Cleo Rocos and... It's barely concealed. Yeah. Yes. Um, but that needed a set and costumes and uh, a lot of makeup and special effects from where the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster has been spilt and is dissolving through things. So for that little 15, 20-second sequence a bit long maybe yeah maybe but that probably goes on for about a minute that sequence yeah. but it it doesn't advance the story at all it's just background color yeah and, and, and there was nothing in that that could have been reused from something else mm. or into something else but they're peppered all the way through the yeah. series and they really bring it to life yeah i mean it, it was wonderful at the time it's wonderful now i have read people panning this online as you know the, a terrible adaptation it really isn't yeah. But people will pan everything. There are even people out there, can you believe it, who pan the corridor people. I'm Try to unable to respond. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is probably this is our first podcast on Hitchhiker's Guide. We are in the process of recording a completely new series of podcasts looking exclusively at audio and radio programmes. Hitchhiker's Guide is going to feature quite heavily across that. That hopefully by the time this comes out, that podcast uh, that we're going to call Oral Intercourse should have at least a few episodes out because we, we, we've recorded a load of them. We have. It's just, as with all things, getting around to the editing part, which is the hard bit. So on that note... We oh, no, 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 we will not. Because oh. I promised you earlier that you could have... On the subject of the corridor people... You could wear let Siri. Siri get involved. I am Persian. Name your price. Now, you're very excited by this. What have you got up your sleeve for the Drag Queen Index? I think it's pretty high, actually. Well, you've got Colin Jeevans in it, who is it's an incredible... No, but it's incredibly camp and flamboyant as a host, and he's covered in makeup. There's Cleo Rockos that you've mentioned. You quite liked her costume, plastic tinfoil costume. Yeah. Sandra Dickinson's overdone makeup and skimpy, skinny costume. And for all the hair looks terrible now, that that's overly crimped was very 80s. It takes bloody ages to do. Well, it takes somebody ages to do. Um, I assume that you're going to give it a five, are you? Is it is it five territory, five obvious? I think it is five territory. I think that's our first five. Because it's not gone out yet, that Corridor People episode. Have we done, f done another five? I think we have. 
what did we do as an honorary mention? There was there was something non-Doctor Who that we did. Was it for our other other podcast, the Three Way Cinema Club, when we did Priscilla Queen of the Desert? It was yes, because that was a film about drag queens, <laughs> and so I think that got a five out of five. Uh, I mean, we haven't done Reboss Operation yet, so. They... <sighs> Fuck off. And on that flamboyant note, we'll sign off. And hopefully see you in a couple of weeks' time with whatever we're doing in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening, boys and girls. See you soon. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.